0: Before we get into all the practical this morning, I want us to kind of sit in the text a little bit this morning. I don't want to jump too quickly to application because I don't want us to miss all that's happening in Luke chapter 4 this morning. It's like the author kind of slows down again in the gospel, and he slows down to not make it about you and not make it about me, but he slows down to see Jesus. We started this series and we said they hope that during this series that you will, be, you will know more about Jesus, but hopefully that you'll be transformed in the likeness of Jesus, and that lastly you would live on mission. And I don't want us to miss each of those pieces within Luke chapter 4. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me into Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, and we're going to look through these 13 verses and see how the author intends us to, to to hear it. See what it would have meant to the original audience before we dive into all the applications. Okay, so sit with me for a little bit. I think you're going to really gain from this as well. And so let's kind of begin here uh, in verse. Um, 1. First off, well, before we get even into that, let me just kind of share some background. Jesus must have shared this with the disciples because you're going to see that um, nobody else is around during this time. So the only way this gets communicated is Jesus thought this was important enough to communicate to his disciples. So it must be important enough for us. And secondly, um, we see why in verse 1. So here we go. Verse 1. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. For forty days, being tempted by the devil, and he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. A couple things: uh, verse one and two already are just packed full of some interesting things that Luke wants us to see. First off, we see that Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit. You see that the Trinity was 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 present at the baptism, and Jesus leaves into the wilderness, but he doesn't leave fully alone. He leaves full of the Holy Spirit. And that's very, very important. We're going to end with that as well. It is hugely important to understand that in every single temptation, everything that we face, the Holy Spirit's role in our life is vital. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit. I can think of so many times during my week and I'm like, when was the last time I woke up and I said, man, if Jesus or if the Holy Spirit is not active in my life today, I don't know what I'm going to do. Most of the times I just run on autopilot. But Christ knew that this was important. This was important enough that the Holy Spirit, full of the Holy Spirit, he returned from the Jordan. That's his baptism. So he's just been baptized and was led by the Spirit. So we see that he's full of the Spirit. We see that the Spirit is leading him into the wilderness. It's it's taking him to this place where it is going to be difficult. It's going to be very hard. And I don't know what that does to your theology, but I think it really should impact it in a very important way to know that sometimes God doesn't always call you to good stuff, like the easy stuff, I should say. He doesn't always lead you to places that's going to be just so simple and so easy. There are things that, that he wants you to experience that are going to be very, very difficult in your life. And so he leads Christ into the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by the devil. And He and so this idea here. Let's stop here for a second. He's, he's in the wilderness. That's important. We're going to talk about that in these east, each of these temptations. The wilderness, I think if you were to read this in the original context and with the original audience, they would have understood wilderness. For us, we don't understand wilderness, right? We, we kind of think Tesla is kind of the idea of wilderness. There's a lot of trees around. There's a lot of woods and things, but wilderness is emptiness. There's nothing around. So the closest I've ever come was on a canoe trip up in Canada where you had to basically go 30 minutes on a dirt road into this park that was a reserve. And then what they did when, one of these days was they put you on a small little island by yourself and they left you there. They, they're supposed to leave you there for six hours. I was left there for nine because uh, they forgot about me, which was fantastic. Um, and so you're sitting on this island with nothing around you. And after the first couple minutes, you're kind of like, this is okay, this is good, I'm debriefing. After the first four hours, you're kind of like, this is getting weird, I'm getting hungry, and you start to hear things. After eight hours, you're kind of like, they're not coming back, I'm done. I'm, and, and it was just, it, it, but I'm telling you, it was meant by God, I think, for a purpose. It was just amazing the clarity that came when there was nothing around you and realizing you couldn't get off because they canoed you to the island and then they just left with the canoe. So you're just like, I guess if I die, I die. Uh, and so that was all part of this idea of wilderness. That's kind of the experience here. He's led to this place, he's got nothing to protect him. He's in this wilderness by himself, completely alone. And then it says this, and this is important. He says, being tempted by the devil. Again, let's be good students of Scripture. Let's look at the actual verbiage in English class. It's a a term that says being tempted. In other words, he wasn't just tempted back then, but it was being tempted. So we often can look at this story. If you've heard this story before, you can look at it and say, well, he was just tempted those three times. No, the author's telling us that he was being tempted all of the 40 days. The three were just the climax of the 40 days. So the being tempted was Christ was tempted every single day, every single moment to give in to whatever his urges were in the human, human side of him. And every single time there was a new temptation. So the 40 days was, was always there. It was constant. So he was full of the Holy Spirit. He returned from the Jordan. He's led by the Spirit. He's in the wilderness. He's there 40 days. We're going to see why that's important. And he's being tempted, present participle that tells us he wasn't just given to the three. He was given to every single moment being tempted. He was alone, hungry, tired, asking for guidance. And once you get all that down, then we get to the end. And it says, and when these days had ended, he was hungry. Thanks, Luke. Um, after 40 days, he gives us the clarifying statement of, and he was hungry. (laughs) You think? Uh, After 40 days, uh, you've all had the hangry experience. Can you imagine 40 days after in the wilderness being tempted all the time, and you're like, I could just use a really, really unhealthy burger right now. I don't know what he wanted, but it was something he probably craved after being in the wilderness for that long, and he was hungry. And so then we pick up on all these temptations, and like I said, I want to hit each of these temptations and hit it in the practical side of Scripture, and then we'll save the application for the end. So stick with me as we kind of walk through what I believe Luke wants us to see uh, in this passage. So we begin verse 3. So he's in the wilderness. He's hungry. The devil says to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to be bread. Now, 40 days, wilderness, alone. Alone you'd probably start to see some things. And then even worse was these stones that were in the wilderness. Many believe this was actually near the Kidron Valley. These rocks that were actually out there were about the size of a loaf of bread, and they were white, and they were smooth. And so every time you saw a rock, you're like, I wonder if that's, I wonder if that's, that looks like bread. And that's just horrible. That's just miserable to think, man, that it's right there in front of me, but it's, but it's a rock. And he The devil comes to him in the midst of his physical needs. That's the first temptation, his physical needs. And he looks at this stone and he says, you're the son of God, right? You can do whatever you want. Miracles are not a problem for you. You could easily command this stone to be bread and solve all of your problems. Easy, simple. Tell it, it'll happen. Eat some bread. It'll probably be warm. You're the son of God. You can do whatever you want. This thing's gonna be amazing. And he tempts him with his physical need. And you think, why why that? Why why bread? Why just that urge, right? And this is important because I feel like these temptations were all meant to push us to a clarifying statement. We'll get to the clarifying statement. But they're meant to push us to the context of Jesus Christ in the wilderness and to push us back to another group of people that were in a wilderness, that were in the wilderness for a set 40 amount of time. So if you know your Bible, if you've been in a church for a while, you realize that the Israelites in the Old Testament were in the wilderness for 40 years, Christ is in the desert for 40 days. As a good Jewish person, you're hearing the story of the temptation of Jesus, and you're like, oh, I've heard this before. This is like when we were in the wilderness for 40 years, and we were hungry then, and, and we wanted things then, and, and God sends manna and quail to them in the, in, in the wilderness, and they're fed. That's the crazy part. They weren't even not eating. They were eating all the time. They were eating so much that they were full every single day. They had enough for what they needed until it came to the point where they were just tired of the same old meal. You've been there. You know what I mean? Like when you get home from the end of the day and your wife or uh, husband or whatever is, is there and, and they're like, what's, what's for dinner? Because you've been working and they haven't or they've just got home at the same time and you hear the wonderful words of leftovers and you're like, yay, right? I don't know if you're just like me. I'm just like, every time I hear leftovers, I'm like great. Uh, just because like, they're not always my thing. Like we had that before. Why do we need to eat it again? Because we didn't finish it and the whole thing. So we get complaining and we get, you know, that whole thing. Israel was the same way with this quail. We've had quail before. We've had manna before. It's always the same thing. Manna, 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 quail, quail. I'm just sick of it. Can we just have chicken one day or bacon or something? Can we just mix it up a little bit? Jesus is in the desert, and he can't eat, much like the Israel's in the desert, and they cannot, or they have eaten, but they're just not satisfied. Which brings us really to the heart of the temptation, and all three of these temptations is going to be this one question, and let me dissect it in a minute, but all of this is going to go back to one question, and every single temptation, every single one that you will face, every single one that is mentioned here, we start with physical needs, but every single temptation, I believe, in your life is there, and in every single temptation you will face, it is asking you, are you here for you or are you, for him? are you here for him? And you look at Israel, and that was the question before them. Are you here for you and the quail and the manna and the just being fed all the time? Or are you here for him? Christ in the desert was being tempted by Satan by this rock of bread, and he's asking the question, are you here for you are you here for him? Which is an interesting question to the Son of God, isn't it? <laughs> right? It's Jesus, so you kind of factor that in. He's kind of like, both. Like, I am God, so I'm here for me, but at the same time, ultimately, Christ in his humanity tells us again and again and again, the temptations are going to show us, Jesus answers every single time, I'm here for him. I'm here for my Father. I'm not here for me. I'm here for him. And whatever my father wants me to do, I'll do. Whatever he doesn't want me to do, I won't do. Israel did not answer the same way. If you read in Psalm 106, it gives us a concise view of Israel's history. And I'm going to reference each of of these temptations back to Israel in Psalm 106. And so in the beginning of Psalm 106, he says this, Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. Praise the Lord. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever." Who can utter the mighty deeds of the Lord or declare all his praises? Blessed are those that observe justice who do righteousness at all times. Again, it's all about him. David in the Psalms is writing all about him. It's all about God. It's all about what he wants and not what I want. And then you get into the Israelites and we see how they fare in this idea of physical needs. And in this section... Uh, in verses four and five, we read this. And you pull that, or I'm sorry, oh, six and eight, somewhere in there. Pull this up. He says this, um, but they had a wanton craving in the wilderness, and they put God to the test, and He gave them what they asked for, but sent a wasting disease among them. In other words, in the physical needs. In verses fourteen and fifteen, He says, "I, I, I wanted all of these things. I wanted the man. I wanted all these things, but in the midst of it, you can read the story." that as they wanted these things, God said, I've given you all that you've wanted and then some. And you still complain to me. You still make it all about you. And so what he does, he sends this disease among them and they need to turn to be saved of it. We'll get into that much in another, another series. But they had this craving. They looked at the needs that they had. And then they said, we want what we want. We don't care what God wants. And they put God out of the picture Christ, on the other hand, looks at this rock and looks at the things that were around him. And he says, you know what? It's not about what I want. It's not about what I need. The most striking part of Israel's temptation was the statement of that he gave them what they asked for in verse 15a. Isn't that interesting? You really want that? It's almost like he didn't, he just kind of took his hands off the wheel And he's like, you drive. You you think you can handle it? You go ahead. And he gave them what they wanted. So much so that in another section in the wilderness, that they have like, they've been storing food and storing food. And if you know the story, there's actually then maggots that start to fill the food. (laughs) And they're like, well, that's not working for us because nobody wants maggot food. And so he, he gave them what they wanted. And this thing turned into this disease among them. And it's a scary thought that when we just want what we want, that God could say, yes. That God could just give us over to something. So for instance, in temptations, if you want control bad enough, and if you keep trying to take out of God's hands and, and put it in your hands, and, he says, and you keep asking, why can't I not be in control? The scary part is maybe God would relinquish one time and just kind of say, okay, fine, you're in control. Go ahead, steer do your life. And that's a scary thing. Because oftentimes our control leads us into places that are not healthy. It could be that you want want the weight of being a perfect parent and comparing yourself to all the other parents and families around you. And it could be that sometimes God just lets you give over to that. And he's like, if that's the world you want to live in, comparison to other people and comparison to other families, see how that feels for a while. Walk off in it. It could be that you want to make that unhealthy friend, right? And and it's that thing in school where you feel like, man, I just, I really want a good friend. This is all God, I feel like, has given me. And God's telling you and warning you. Your parents are telling you and warning you. That's not the friends you need. But you just keep wanting it and wanting it and wanting it and wanting it. until eventually maybe God just kind of says, okay, I'm going to take my hands off the wheel a little bit. And I'm going to let you go into that. And then you realize that friend is not the friend you thought they were. And they do some damage along the way. And you're kind of like, oh, what have I done? and God is there to help us on the other side. You want to cheat on that exam? I'm going to take my hands off, and you can cheat, and then see how that goes for you. Um, you want to give your life over to destructive, sinful habits, and you're like, I just want it more than you, God. I want it more than you. There may be times where God's like, see where that goes for you. And when we take our hands off the wheel, and, and, and he takes his hands off his wheel, when we're in charge, it gets really scary. Biggest one, just personally for me, that I feel like I want and want and want and want and want all the time. Um, I have a propensity, I think, towards uh, this idea of gluttony and not in the food sense. Um, I, I have a gluttony in the other sense, and, and I'll just be uh, open and transparent. My, 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 uh, my gluttony goes into overworking, right? So my, my choice is not food, it's work. And so I'll throw myself into work and I'll throw myself into work and I'll throw myself into work and even when I come home, I'll throw myself on the computer or whatever needs to get done and I'll work and I'll work and I'll work and I'll work. And the hard part is you live in a culture where that's like excel, accepted and celebrated and everybody's like, good for you. You're working hard. Nice job. Putting in more hours than everybody else. That's awesome. That's great. But what it is, it's a selfish motivation. It's, it's really more out of guilt. It's more out of fear. It's out of, am I going to do something wrong? And, and I give myself over to it. And there are times where God takes his hands off the wheel. It's like, hey, if you want to overwork Overwork, man. My body starts to shut down. My family starts to, to fall apart. Uh, work and job and even church starts to kind of go by the wayside, which sounds weird because that's where you're, you're, I am working. And, but there's this thing that God says, if I'm not enough for you and if you're going to turn to work, that's a problem. If I'm not your identity and work becomes your identity, that's a problem. And every single temptation, and that being one of them, he's asking me the question, Is Are you here for you or are you here for me? And I have to keep asking myself that same question. In this work week, in the hours I'm putting in, all these things, am I here for me or am I here for him? I don't know what your temptation is, but it's a constant thing that I fear that God may sometimes just hand us over to something that is completely unhealthy. And the first temptation comes in this idea of physical needs. And in your physical need, whatever it is, Are you here for you or are you here for him? Because ultimately, we're here for him. Jesus answers in verse 4. And Jesus answered him, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone. Isn't that amazing? In the midst of everything there, he quotes scripture back and he gets back on track. You can almost hear the words later in Jesus' life of there's birds of the air and lilies of the field that are dressed finer than Solomon, right? There, there are things that he says, do not be anxious for anything, but by prayer and supplication, make your requests known to God. He, he writes that through the apostle Paul later in Philippians. Philippians 4, 6-7, don't worry about anything, but in everything, through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, print, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus." Every single physical need that you have is a question, are you going to trust him or are you going to trust you? Jesus trusts the Father, and he says, I'm hungry. It's been 40 days. I get it, but I'm going to be better than Israel, and I'm going to say whatever the Father wants. Israel said whatever we want, and we make God do what we want. Jesus says whatever God wants, I will do. And the first temptation, I believe, points us back to Israel, and it gives us hope for even our world today of God is there asking that question again and again. Are you here for you? Are you here for him? Temptation number two. This is verses five through seven. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And he said to him, to you, I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. To which we ask the question, is that right? (laughs) Is he he lying or is he being serious? Does, Does he have the power? Does he not have the power? Can he really do that? Can he not do that? What's the theology tell us, right? He says, to you, I'll give all of this authority and their glory. You want reputation? You want to take out Rome? You want to be the superpower of the day? I'll give it to you. Just worship me and I'll give it to you. Here's the tricky part about Satan, and it's a tricky part about us every single day of our life. It was a tricky part about Jesus, it's a tricky part about Israel and the Old Testament, is he gives you half truths all the time. He'll give you a half truth and an accuser and he's a liar because here's the truth of this statement. Yes, he is Prince of this world. Ephesians chapter two, verse two, John twelve, thirty one, John fourteen thirty. Talk about Satan's power that is here on this earth. That God has kind of given him control over these things. And we see sin all around us and brokenness around us. He says, so there is, yes, there is power here. And he does have real power. Let's not second guess that. But the other side of this is he has no authority to give it to anyone. All his authority and all his power is governed by God himself. God, the author, the king who is ruling on his throne... Looks at Satan, he says, I will let you go so far, but you have no power that is not given to you or granted by God Himself. It's the equivalent of Dwight Schrute, who is the assistant regional manager, not the assistant regional manager, the assistant to the regional manager. Or in one episode, he was the honorary volunteer corporal in charge of assisting all activities according to security, right? It's these titles that sound really big and important, but they really have no power. Satan has power, yes, but it is limited. And he tells a half-truth here. He says, yes, I am ruler of this world. I can, I can do things here, but all the authority that he has is given by God. He has no authority to give this to Jesus. He has no power to give this to him. And so he says, I give you all these things if you will worship me. Here's the other temptation at the stake. Not only that, that he would worship Satan, that's, that's number one, that's huge. But the second temptation in Christ's life had to be this in his humanity. What he's offering him is another way out other than the cross. That's what he's offering the, the, the Israelites, the Pharisees, all saw the Messiah coming and setting up his kingdom on earth and ruling on earth and taking out the superpower of Rome and Israel becomes the new superpower, right? All the reputation of Israel is known again as it was in the Old Testament and everybody fears Israel. Israel is the massive power. We can take control, we can take it by force. We are now the ruling superpower of the world. As a nation, we are now the nation, Satan is offering Jesus. You can be that nation, and you don't have to go through all the pain of the cross to get there. All you got to do is worship me. I'll give it to you. We can skip all that part, and, and, and you can have what you want right here, right now. The glory and the worship is part of it, but ultimately it's that Rome would go away. The earthly king would reside over the nations, and this was a quick pass to get to the earthly kingship that was going to happen. That all nations would be under the rule of God. That Israel was tempted as well in this way. This glory question in this temptation number two is this. Glory belongs to whom? Who do we give glory to? Israel was tempted in the same way in the Old Testament. Psalm 106, 19 to 20. In the wilderness, they're given the Ten Commandments. They go up on the mountain And they come down from the mountain in verses 19 and 20 of Psalm 106. It says, they made a calf in Horab and worshipped a metal image. And it was kind of a golden thing. It wasn't just metal, but it was golden. He worshipped this metal image and they exchanged, this is the key, they exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. (laughs) To which you got to ask, is that a, I mean, I mean, in a rational, sane mind, you've kind of equated, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do the same, same thing. So I think of God, I think of his holiness, I think of his glory and all that he is, and I think that's the equivalent to an ox that eats grass made of gold, right? Right? They exchanged the glory of God for an image of an ox that eats grass. But before we get too hard on Israel, can we just relate a little bit to say that in every single temptation we face and every single temptation we give into, isn't it at the end of the day, after you've given over to that temptation, you look back and you're like, oh my word, I just exchanged the glory of God for yelling at my kids. (sighs) Oh my gosh, I just exchanged the glory of God for what I looked at online. Oh my gosh, I just exchanged the glory of God, the, 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 the fullness of God, and I exchanged it for that promotion. <sighs> they don't look the same, do they? At the end of the day, after you've done that thing, after you've sinned that numerous times, you look back at your sin, and you're like, it's like an ox eating grass, isn't it? You're like, it's just worthless. It just looks so small. But in the moment of the temptation, it looked Okay. Israel's with us in this, and they fail this glory question. God says, you're going to worship me? Are you going to worship me alone? I'm going to give you the Ten Commandments. No sooner does he come down the mountain and there's a calf. <laughs> They're like, no, thanks. We got bored. You took too long in the mountain. You just got to speed that up a little faster, and we wouldn't have had this problem. We made this ox. Pretty cool. He eats grass. It's the God of Baal and the whole thing, so we've, we've exchanged it for you. Didn't go well for them. Um, And Jesus does not give in to the same glory question. Instead, in verse 8, and Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Get away from me. This is not worshiping you. This is worshiping the only one that I can turn to and that is God himself. So temptation number one, he talks about the physical needs. Temptation number two, he talks about glory and the reputation of who he gives. And then thirdly, the temptation is this and this is the temptation of our trust. It's a temptation to trust over testing. This is interesting. Luke chapter four, verses nine through 11. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. In other words, he took him and he put him at home base. He took him in home field advantage and he put him at the place that he would feel most at home and most comfortable, which is the temple, Okay. God's glory resided in the temple in the Old Testament. The temple was seen here, and you could see that God was, like, it's almost like if there's any place Jesus would feel comfortable, it would be here at the temple closest to God. He sets him at the temple, at the pinnacle of the temple, and he said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. And then he does something crazy. Satan starts to quote scripture. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You see, this pinnacle of the temple is about 150 feet off of the Kidron Valley floor. For those who have a height problem, it would have been an issue. 150 feet—you ain't gonna make that. I mean, your, your humanity—you ain't gonna make it. It's gonna be over. And he says, just 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 test God's goodness. See what He does. Toss yourself down. You're his son, for crying out loud. He's going to come. He's going to get you. It's going to be fine. And even, look, Psalms says, if you read the Psalms, he says, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands he will bear you up, and he will strike you foot against the this stone. Is, this is written. Like, this is in Scripture. Why not just do it? And it's a test of God's provision. Right? Not really. It's kind of a test of God's, not only provision, but really it's about his abilities. And you think, okay, did he misquote scripture? Did, he, did Satan just kind of twist this a little bit? Here's the interesting thing. Not really. If you read 91, 9 to 12, he says, Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the most high is my refuge. No evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. He's quoting it. It's right. But here's the thing. The motive is what's at stake. And it's a question and a statement I would say to us be careful tossing out scripture at people because it seems accurate. Be careful just tossing out a verse here and there without knowing context, without knowing what's behind the passage. And he does this to test him. This has nothing to do with Satan's belief in scripture. This has nothing to do with it. This is just him trying to manipulate the situation to see look, it's in the Bible. Look, God said it to you. So just go ahead and do it. It's no big deal. Israel had the same thing. In verses 32 to 33 of Psalm 106, he says, They angered him at the waters of Meribah, and it went ill with Moses on their account, for they made his spirit bitter, and he spoke rashly with his lips. It's a situation where they're wanting water, and he was promised to them. There was nothing wrong with the water that they wanted, but they got angry, and there was a striking of a rock, and the whole thing. And it was really a question, not as much of anger, but it was a question of who do you trust? And they tested God in the wilderness. Satan's testing Jesus in the wilderness. And it's asking the same question. Are you here for you or are you here for him? Because here's, here's, here's what's true in this idea of, of testing and, and temptation. Let me give you a practical one. Okay. He's basically saying this is about testing God. This isn't about trusting God. Jesus even answers him in 4.12. It is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Both Moses and us, the temptation is to turn God into our own little magician and our miracle worker. And to put it practically today, it's a thing of saying, God, I just need a sign. God, I just need a visible symbol. God, I just need this. God, I just want this. Now, can I just be real and transparent again with you just just for a second? When I studied this, when I was putting this together... I was drawn back to this building stuff and the process and things like that. And and God in his graciousness, there was very specific answers to to questions, right? We talked about that. There was this very specific answer to to prayer requests and, and he answered very tangibly in that way. But I think the difference is this. It's not just that God won't answer specifically. It's when we test him to say, if you do this, then I'll do this. If you, if you show me this sign, then I'll follow you. You see it all the time in those who, who don't really want anything to do with Christ. And it's just this thing of like, well, if he would just come down in physical form, then I could believe. If you just toss yourself off the building, he's gonna come for you. If God would just be, if he would do this, then I'll do this. We're making this transaction kind of thing. And it's not about trusting him. It's about putting him to a test. And, and he says, we are not to do that, which is a biblical statement. And it's a different temptation than we've ever thought of. I thought of that with the building and everything else. I'm like, God, please, I want to trust you. I don't want to have to put out fleeces like Gideon. That's a whole other story. We'll get into that later. But I don't want to have to put out fleeces like Gideon to test you every single time. I want to just trust you without saying, if you show me this, then it'll be proof. And therefore, I'll do it. Faith is trust in what is unseen. And in God's graciousness, he'll answer those prayers at times for us. He'll show us those things that we are testing him in. But ultimately, Jesus is saying here, and it's to understand that even Israel, God is not here to do the magic tricks. God's not here just to do the miracles, And I think that's where so many movements get caught up in these ideas of miracles and signs. And if God would just, and he's visible because he's doing all these miracles and signs. It's trust. It's trust. Jesus did not need to see him pull him out of a 150 foot free fall to trust him. Jesus did not need to see the water come out of a rock in the Israelite time. Jesus knew the heart of his father. Jesus knew his compassion, his love, and his perfection, which is really the question again today. In every temptation you're being asked, are you here for you or are you here for him? And in every single instance in the temptation, Jesus was referring the temptation, one, practically back to the Old Testament, practically back to Israel's failures in the 40 years in the wilderness, And he's showing the nations and he's showing us that what Israel couldn't get right in 40 years, the son of God will get right in 40 days. What Israel continued to mess up time and time and time again in their humanity, Jesus is different. Jesus is the son of God in his humanity and he answers every single time, I'm not here for myself and my own humanity, my own wants, I'm here for the father. And if the father says do it, then I'll do it. But if he doesn't do it, then I won't. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he, departed from, him until, he had departed from him until, again, an opportune time. And you'd see him again come in the garden. And you'd see him come and ask the questions, is God really gonna be here for you? Is God really gonna see you through this? Every single temptation is like that. Satan is gonna continue it again and again and again, ask the same question that he asks in Genesis is God really good? Because if he is, would he really do that to you? Would he really put you through something like that? The Bible says this, and it you know, could even give you a chapter verse that's out of context. And you're just like, well, I guess that's true. Instead, it's a trusting and saying, I am not here for me. I am here for him. And every single temptation is that. And can I just say as we close, I am thankful that as we look at this, I don't need to give you a bunch of practical, okay, get an accountability partner, get the time, get the safeguards, do all that kind of stuff. If you wanna know all the details and specifics about how to hit your single temptation, great. Talk with me, talk with somebody else about what your temptation is because here's what I know about temptation. Let me give you one practical. This is gonna be your best practical of temptation that I'm gonna give you all morning. You wanna get practical in beating your temptation? Let me give you one thing that'll help. Confess it say it out loud to somebody else you trust. You want to be temptation? Be honest. Say something about it. Confess it because otherwise you're just going to continue to hold inside. It's going to be you. It's just a sin between me and God, right? We make up this thing, of this Christian thing of like, it's just an unspoken. What is that? Right? I mean, that's, Okay, great. I'll pray for you and your unspoken, whatever that is, right? If it, 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 you've got to be able to find somebody in this world to confess that thing to. If you want a practical guide, well, I just want an accountability partner. I just want scripture. I just want to beat this thing. Great. Tell somebody. Be like, dude, I messed up and I'm done trying to mess up. I need help. Confession is the key to temptation. And not just to God, but to those who you offend, those who are your part of this, that's your, that's your practical. But let me just move past the practical into one and, and even better news for you. It's not just about fixing the temptation. As you mature in Jesus, it's not just about trying to beat every single temptation. It's about being thankful for the God who beats every single temptation that has come in your life, that is in your life, and will be in your life in the future. Because guess what? None of us in this room got temptation beat. None of us are going to be like, dude, I nailed it. 42 years old, man. I don't deal with it anymore. Must, I, in my younger days, yeah, I could see that. But now, like, I don't even get tempted at all. Like, it's just clear sailing to heaven. I'm most sanctified now that I've ever, like, what is, no. No, nobody's made it. Nobody's arrived, right? I got 80-year-old guys I've talked to that are like, I am still dealing with stuff. I still got junk in my life. And I just can't wait to get to heaven until the stuff gets off me and it's just gone, The reality is It's not just about fixing the temptation. The reality is this morning that we gotta be thankful for what Christ has already done in us. So let me close with this. I am thankful for Christ. I am thankful for Christ because he destroys temptation. I'm thankful that he promised to provide a way of escape in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. I am thankful that he knows me and my own stupid sin yet doesn't condemn me. I am thankful because of Jesus because I can model his way of dealing with temptation with my kids and those around me. That I can take it in grace. I am thankful that Jesus gives me answers for my unsaved friends in the area of temptation. I'm thankful that Jesus beat Satan in temptation. I'm thankful that the Holy Spirit fills me with power to beat temptation on a regular basis, just like it did him. You see, we can look at this, and kind of get, I just got to fix it, fix it, fix it. Or you can look at temptation and say, man, how cool is it that I know that every single temptation I face, there is grace for it. There is freedom found in it. And not because I'm that great, but because God is in me to beat every single temptation I'm going to face. And I just have to answer one question. Am I here for me or am I here for him? I'm here for him. So God, take whatever this temptation is and I want you to get rid of it. I want to confess it. I want to get out and make it about you. Are you here for you or are you here for him? Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you this morning that in every temptation, this is not new to you. I thank for you that you're the better Israel. I'm thankful that you are the better children of God. That as Israel failed, you were perfect. That as Israel wanted what they wanted on their own terms, you consistently, even as a son of God, said, it's not about my will, but the will of the one who sent me. Father, I pray for everyone in this room. I don't know what we're dealing with. I don't know what things we have in our closets and things we feel like we just have going on in the temptation world. But God, may we get to the bottom of it and say, what is it? And then once we identify it, then we can say, okay, God, I need to confess it. And then once we confess, we need to live in grace and freedom to say, you are a good God. You will rip this out of me. You will eventually make this good. If I continue to take the right steps And saying, it's not about me, it's about you. And in every single temptation, God, I pray that you would give us victory over them, that we would continue to say, it's about you and not about me in every single thing we face this week. Father, as we close out, we want to just echo these words through song that we have the spirit living in us, that we have a spirit who is alive. I love the phrase, Father, in the song that you said, that there is, there is a glory that will not be diminished. There is a glory that will not be exchanged for an ox that eats grass. But we can look to your glory as the only glory that's needed. And Father, that you would set the pace and the direction of our lives. May we sing out in the freedom that we have in you, Father, if there are people here this morning that they just need to confess some things, I pray that they would find the right person to do that to and with. That they would just confess those things, say, hey, here's, here's my week, here's what I've done. I need to just get this out in the middle of the song, whatever. But for those, God, who maybe have been through this week like mine, and it's just been temptation after temptation, and some have been great, some have been bad, and, and yet I can turn to you at the end of the day and say, but God in me is making me perfect. The spirit living in me is fighting every temptation so I don't have to. May we sing that out this morning. It's in your powerful son's name we pray. Amen.